Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I am joined by Jason Huey, who is one of the co-authors of the book Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. Jason earned his BA in government at Regent University in 2012, and he's worked at several liberty-advancing organizations uh, in the past, and now he is actually full-time in the fitness industry. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Doug. I'm excited to, to be here. So the book that you contributed to uh, is called Called to Freedom. LCI has been uh, promoting this book for uh, at least a year. We were kind of instrumental in helping get the book, uh, helping to get the book uh, funded um, and promoting it even before it was published. And I have to say, I admit, I didn't read it until about a month ago, and I really wish I had read it earlier. For those of you listening, if you think that you look through the you know the chapter contents on Amazon or something, and you're like, ah, I've heard these arguments before. My guess is you may not have because these authors, and Jason included, really tackle the subject of things like Romans 13. Uh, what does it mean to be a libertarian? Does it mean you have to be a libertine? How do you actually promote the message of liberty in ways that I haven't really heard fleshed out in many other books, and I've read a lot. And so I, I regret wishing I'd, I wish I had read this book a lot earlier. So uh, the book is called To Freedom. And Jason, your chapter is actually the longest chapter in the book. I didn't realize how long it was until I was about halfway through. And I'm like, wow, how are you going to wrap this up? And I'm like, oh, uh, I'm only halfway yeah. through your chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah, you were tasked with the, the, the longest chapter. Was that by design or did it just happen that way? It, I think it just happened uh, that the nature of some of the topic. When you're when you're trying to tackle a topic as big as what does the Bible say about government, um, you, there's kind of a lot of things that you can talk about. Uh, and I, 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 what you're reading is actually narrowed down from other issues that I wanted to talk about and other things that I that I thought about exploring, but ultimately didn't have time or to or weren't as germane to the point about reconciling Christianity and libertarianism. Um, so it, it ultimately ended up, I think, just happening that way. So tell us a little bit about your personal background. Were you always a libertarian? And if not, how did your process or your thoughts shift? Not always. Uh, and I go into a little bit of detail about this in the first part of my chapter. Uh, I grew up a, what I would call a conservative. Um, my, I mean, like when I was a kid, I was a big fan of the Bush administration. And a teen, as a teenager, I supported the Iraq war and the war on terrorism and those sorts of things. Um, and then I, uh, I, was, I, was, I was exposed to libertarianism a little bit during that time, uh, but ultimately, uh, I, I wouldn't say I would have classified myself a libertarian until I probably was in college, uh, or even, even maybe in the later parts of college. Um, I, I went to a, a fee seminar uh, just before I started attending Regent University. Uh, and that was very helpful in in exposing me to a lot of excellent thought in the libertarian community. And that is where I really uh, became aware of folks like uh, 
Mises and Hayek and Rothbard, um, and just being exposed to the, the liberty minded, uh, thought that's, that's been out there. And then in college, uh, I started to really, really question, um, my prior, my prior conservative leanings. And, uh, if that was actually tenable in a political sense, uh, compared to what I thought was ultimately came convinced to be the superior argument of libertarianism. You know, when I, when 9-11 happened, I was in college and I actually wondered, cause I had this, I don't know if you had this sort of belief growing up. I think we have similar backgrounds in terms of our you know childhood theology and, you know, leanings that way. Right. I was, I was kind of in the mind of, you know, America was founded as a Christian nation or founded by a bunch of people who were Christians. Yes. And I was taught that you were too. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that pivoted from, or that made me pivot away from traditional conservatism uh, politically is when 9-11 happened, one of the first thoughts I had that week was, well, you know, if we're really a Christian nation, we'll turn the other cheek. Mm. And we didn't. And because I thought George Bush was just an A-plus Christian back then. So were there any were there any events for you or or things that you read and you're like wow that really changes the game for me? Yeah, well, I actually refer to an event something like that in my mind, and this uh, uh, this I refer to in my chapter. Uh, I was uh, coming home from I think it was a, a piano practice or debate practice when I was in high school, and the news the news uh, was talking about. Uh, I don't know. If you, I'm sure you remember uh, President Bush's surveillance uh, and wiretapping programs, and this the whole the old debates that were around yeah. uh, his surveillance uh, policies. And I remember thinking to myself, "I'm okay with President Bush doing it because he's President Bush." But then I had this thought that just kind of like it just kind of came to me, and I thought, "But wait a second, if it's not President Bush, and let's say it's another president." five years down the road, 10 years down the road, who doesn't share the same values as President Bush, then it could be used for a lot of evil things. Um, right. And that was that was something, that was like one of the first moments I remember thinking about the use of power, not just in the sense of what is it being used for, but the nature of power itself um, and understanding how honestly dangerous it is to uh, expand powers to the point that, okay, even if they're being used for good right now and you think they're being used for good, will that always remain the same? And will the power that you're using today ultimately set a precedent for something much worse down the road? Uh, So that was was a big thing. Another big thing was um, when the 2008 election happened, um, when it was McCain versus um, Obama. I, I was at that point where for me, McCain was, I was, I was, I still was kind of in that between conservative libertarian stage, um, leaning libertarian and McCain was so many people just automatically rallied to McCain. And there was so many aspects of McCain's, uh, policies that I thought were just big government, both in terms of domestic spending and in terms of uh, proclivity toward, uh, war, um, and I remember thinking, is this the best we can do? Like, I'm not going to vote. I don't believe in Obama and his policies, uh, but I, McCain is not an answer either. Uh, and I think, and that was actually when I was first eligible to vote. And I, I remember I ended up voting for uh, Bob Barr, the libertarian candidate at that time. The only candidate with a mustache. 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's a little jumping ahead in this conversation a little bit, but have you, the, the whole power argument about, you know, in the hands of power, you trusted George Bush, you know, I kind of felt the same way, you know, cause I, you know, he seems like a good hearted person. He doesn't seem as evil as, you know, people think Trump is. I mean, we thought nobody could hate anybody worse than they hate George Bush. And now we have Trump and you have the left hating him more than anybody else, which is, right. you know, Hey, it's just going to keep going that direction. I bet. But yeah. do you have you had any conversations with people who are now realizing, oh crap, Obama is not always going to be in power, and now Trump has the same powers Obama, you know, did? Or does anybody on the left have that realization? Have you heard or or talked to anybody? I mean, I will be honest with my uh, full time uh, job being in the fitness industry. Now I'm not really as involved in the political conversations these days. But from what I've seen, uh, I I don't think many people are going to recognize that a lot of the things that Trump did are, or Trump is doing, will do. Uh, I don't know if they're going to understand that a lot of the precedent for his use of power, especially when it comes to like executive orders and things of that nature, uh, Obama was very, very uh, free in his use of those powers. Uh, And really, in many ways, uh, Trump's use of power I think right now it's just going to be a continuation and an extension of both the Bush and the Obama uh, legacies. And not really, he might, he's going to probably use his powers in a different way than Obama did uh, on certain policies. Yeah. But the powers that he's using are powers that pre- both President Obama and President Bush used. Yeah, so you're not having a lot of personal conversations with people, but you're predicting that it's just going to be a continuation of the same old thing. And I don't think a lot of people are going to realize that. They're just going to criticize Trump for being Trump, which I understand, but they're, uh, but then they're going to think that the solution is to elect the right guy who's not Trump. And, um, I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to be the solution. I think that's what people have been thinking for a long time. I think the failure to recognize that the problem isn't necessarily who's in power, although I I, I do, that does make a difference, of course, but the yes. failure isn't just that, that the failure is what kind of power are we handing to an administration who we are going to end up despising? I mean, again, they never saw that coming. You know, Trump, nobody saw Trump coming. Um, I don't even know if Trump did. But anyway, um, so that's kind of a, <laughs> a little off topic to. Yeah, to that's, uh, yeah, that's true. But I'm always curious how people are talking to other or how people have had conversations with others since Trump has been elected and kind of understanding right. the hatred and, you know, he's just he's just the same old, same old, you know, presidential powers are going to be abused and, and maybe we should rethink that. I think that's the voice that libertarians often have. And you speak a little bit about that in the book where you you don't. One thing I loved about your chapter was that you don't proof text. In fact, you specifically try to avoid it and call it out as a problem when trying to understand how the Bible talks about government. And you talk about different themes in your book, which we're going to we're gonna probably talk about here in a little bit. Um, yep. So what is for you the, the – what's the clincher for you? Why are you a libertarian? Oh, that's a good, good question. Um, I'm a libertarian because I guess two, two reasons immediately come to mind. The first is that I believe libertarianism is the most consistent political philosophy with the realities of human nature. Um, I think any political philosophy that grants um, centralized state authority, the kind of powers that it does, um, 
is inconsistent with the way human nature actually works. Uh, humans are, I believe, sinful. And when given the great power that the state can provide sinful humans, regardless of the veneer of legitimacy, uh, can lead to great and has led to great evils throughout history. Um, thankfully, the United States has been a better example of a state in terms of the amount of um, evils that have been perpetrated. But like, it's obviously not a, a totalitarian regime or anything close to that. But still, it, it is the central problem of granting sinful humans the, the authority to, um, to, to decide how people are going to live their lives and not, not understanding the dangers of that, uh, I think, is the first thing that makes libertarianism um, very uh, palatable to me. Um, libertarianism understands that you give humans power uh, and that's dangerous. And the, as much as we can decentralize power, especially political power, uh, that's, that's going to be um, where we see the most uh, respect for the rights of life, liberty, and property. Uh, the second reason that it, it, it appeals to me is that, um, and this is related to my Christian beliefs, I believe it allows for Libertarianism allows for us to um, be, to live out our, my, at least for me, my Christian convictions within the political context. I don't feel, I don't feel um, bound to sacrifice my moral and religious views uh, for the sake of political expediency as a libertarian. I feel that I'm advocating for the rights and the, the justice of my fellow man. And in addition, I don't feel that I am, I am bound or obligated to all of a sudden become a supporter of one party over another above all else, uh, which I, I feel like there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, especially people who call themselves Christians. And I'm not trying to call people out, but sometimes it just seems like to them who's president, who's uh, in power, what their policies are. It just all seems to be a little bit more about that than about... Uh, Jesus Christ came and died and to save us and to from our sins and yeah. there's so much more freedom and, and uh, grace to be found in that and to share with others. Um, we shouldn't be getting we shouldn't be causing a stumbling block um, because we want a certain policy to be enacted that will make all these other people not happy. Um, and I, I find that I find in libertarianism a, a wonderful. Wonderful way for me to embrace a coherent political philosophy, but in the same time, find something that allows me to be a, a hopefully a testament to what I ultimately believe about. Um, right. Yeah, and it also gives the same respect to other people who have differing views of that. Like it's it's a political way to right. co coexist with other religions because mm -hmm. you don't have to feel. Uh, you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to be at battle with other people who are fighting over power, you know, just right. because their religion might be different from yours. Yeah. In some ways I, I, I enjoy the fact that as a libertarian, I don't, I no longer have a aesthetic admiration or any desire to seek out or encourage people to pursue power. But instead I feel like I can encourage people to pursue other things outside of political power that can better people's lives as a libertarian. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, for me, I 
I, I realized that if I were in charge of the world, it would be perfect, of course, right? You know, it's, it's all in my head. It's all, it all right. works out. If people just did what I thought they should do, the world would be a better place. And, and then, mm. you know, after about three seconds of thinking of that, you realize how foolish it is to think that, which is, right. um, you know, it's. But we all do fun. think it. I think, and that's, uh, that's something that we all need to have an honest conversation with ourselves about. Yeah. Well, uh, I, yeah. And so I, I'm, for me, I'm a libertarian because I know that even though I have great ideas and I'm a bright person, that the world can't just live the way I want people to live. You know, I can't make the world go round the way I want it to go round. That's just, as Hayek would call, a fatal conceit, you know. Yes, yes, It's definitely. not going to work. That not, not at all. So as we think about your chapter in the book, what does the Bible say about government? No wonder it's the longest chapter in the book. There's, there's a lot of, and, and the thing is, it's not like there's that much to say. It's that you have to set it up in such a way that you don't miscommunicate what the Bible says and doesn't say. Like you're, you're setting yourself up to make a claim about Christianity and libertarianism based on how you read the scripture and how, and, and actually multiple ways of reading a couple of key passages, um, mm-hmm. which, which I think is very clever and also very, um, it's very respectful of other people because you, you allow room for people to disagree about the interpretation of Romans 13, but you still explain how you're, you're still at the end of the day, you can still allow for libertarianism. So in the book, you make a claim that libertarianism and Christianity are compatible and right. I, I realize that when you write a book, you you can make strong claims and you can make you know moderate or weak claims, and that's te- you know technically that's more of a moderate or a weak claim. Not that it's a weak argument, but you're not mm-hmm. saying strongly that they have to be. If you're a Christian, right. you have to be a libertarian. Um, was mm-hmm. that is that just something from the book, or do you do you really feel like all Christians should be libertarians? I think there's a difference between uh, something that I think would be obligatory and then something that should be mandated. By based upon doctrine, there's nowhere in the Bible that I can read, and uh, I don't. I would challenge anyone to to show me anywhere in the Bible that one's political beliefs are uh, a component of one's uh, salvation. Uh, Jesus Christ says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me." Uh, that doesn't say I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, but make sure you've also read Hayek and Mises. Um, it's it's uh, it's a very. I want to make sure that everyone knows that I'm a Christian first, and that the, my fellow co-authors are all Christians first, and we we strongly believe that. Um, but when you analyze the nature of libertarianism as a political philosophy relative to competing political philosophies, uh, modern progressive liberalism, um, uh, conservatism in, in its different forms, whether it's neoconservatism or even I would argue like fusionist uh, conservatism, um, there are, I find, aspects of those political philosophies which I as a Christian don't, uh, don't believe to be um, as consistent with the moral code that Christianity uh, provides as libertarianism is. Uh, and so I, I would like to see more Christians be libertarian, be libertarian and, and espouse that as their political beliefs. But I'll, I'll never, and none of my co-authors will ever make the statement that all Christians have to be libertarian. Uh, because, again, that, I think that's kind of slipping into that fatal conceit. And especially with regard to the idea of salvation. 
there is just no scriptural support for the idea that one strain of a, one political view is somehow uh, an essential component of of um, being saved and justified by faith before Christ. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think it should go without saying, but we probably would be remiss if we didn't mention that you are not speaking of the Libertarian Party, of course, or as a, yes, you know, like a consistent absolutely. a consistent voting record of Libertarian, whatever that means. Right. I mean, you're really talking about a, a philosophy of small how do we, yeah, yeah, small L Libertarian, a, yep. my guess is it's more of a philosophy of as as minimal as possible government. Yeah, so with regard to wanting to see Christians uh, be more libertarian, I'm not necessarily looking for them to join the Libertarian Party or attend every Libertarian conference out there. What I'd like to see is for them change the way that uh, they think about politics in, in consistent with libertarianism as a political philosophy, and then hopefully that would manifest in some form of action or even just in the way that they, they talk with others about what they believe. I hear a lot of people put down libertarians, you know, with snide remarks about no government or, you know, they bring up things like the fire and police departments, which are far more local in their scope than what we tend to say big, big government. Yeah. Yes, even, well, I mean, even police departments, depending on what kind of area in the country you live in, that could, I mean, there could be three police officers in your community and you don't in any way, you know, depending on who who's listening here, you may not in any way think of that as big government, <laughs> yeah, um, unless it's just a big dude. <laughs> She's from a place uh, near Altoona, Pennsylvania, and it's like three or four officers in a very small, very small uh, police presence. Yeah. So a lot of this this argument against libertarianism, they kind of had this, this impression that we just don't think there should be any laws, there should be any government, and, you know, that we just eschew any any sort of regulation and and so forth and you know typically we when we think about government we don't mean governance we we mean something like what you know I are talking about the state and so right. in your in your chapter in called to freedom you do talk a little bit about um, defining what is the state um, and what do we mean when we say government can you just give us a brief picture of of how you start that argument right and I think that's essential to understanding um, the libertarian perspective. The state, in my view, um, has a couple key characteristics, and this distinguishes the state from, if you want to think of pretty much any other social or private institution, um, these characteristics separate it. Um, the first is that it has a territorial monopoly over uh, whatever the jurisdiction is that, that it controls. Um, the second characteristic is that it has essentially the, the power to tax, the power of taxation. Uh, and especially that power of taxation is very significant because if you think about it, uh, no business, uh, I, I think I think I used the example in this example of a book. Um, if Domino's Pizza were to come to my door with uh, pizza, now I love pizza, but if they came to my door and said, we're going to charge you $150 for this medium two-topping pizza, and you don't have a choice, but you have to uh, accept this pizza, and then you have to pay us $150. Uh, most of us would understand, like, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. How could Domino's ever think about doing that? Uh, but that's actually how the state operates because of the power of taxation. If, if it provides or claims to provide a service, yes, we do, might receive some, maybe some benefit. Yeah, the pizza might still taste good. Uh, the service might still provide us of some value, but it sets the price 
and we are not allowed to, uh, we don't have other alternatives that we can uh, seek out and we're not allowed to have other alternatives to seek out because the state has that power to tax. Um, Could I update your analogy there a little bit? Absolutely. So the Domino's pizza shows up at your doorstep and says that the pizza is $150, but you're only going to have to pay a dollar because the guy across the street who lives in a really big house, he's paid the rest of the bill. There you go. Yeah. Well, that who's not going to say yes to that? Well, I'll say yes to that for sure, but it's still not just to the guy who's uh, across the street being forced to pay that. The the ultimate issue is that someone. Yeah, but he has. But he he got his own pizza. In fact, he's got his own chef. It's what? What do you mean? It's not just. So. Here, and this gets into uh, my if you're gonna if you're gonna force me to pick my favorite author of all time, it's Frederick Bastiat. Um, it is impossible to introduce a policy such as the one you're describing on even on the basis of philanthropy. Like, okay, so and so, the guy across the street has his own private chef, and so he's basically paid for your pizza, um, and we've we've made him do that, and consequently, you get this pizza for one dollar. The problem with that is that introduces, if you introduce that into law as the foundation of law, as a central characteristic that a state can have that power to take from someone because they deem that that person has the capability, you are essentially going to create a system of conflict whereby the person who is being robbed from now has an incentive to figure out how to make that system work for them. So maybe it didn't work for them today. But they're going to now use that system in the future to make it work for them. And alternatively, then those individuals who previously had it working for them are going to have an incentive to try to make for it work for them again. And you'll constantly have this system where law is a source of conflict, trying to take from one and give to the other. And there's everybody never plunders system. everybody. Exactly. And yeah. that is where that's why Bastiat talks about the state as being the great fiction uh, by which everyone is allowed to plunder everyone else. That source, that kind of conflict in society just seems to me, uh, not only is it immoral, but it also leads to things that are, I would even talk about just from a, a kind of a utilitarian perspective, are not beneficial. Uh, we, we lose economic growth. We, we spend more resources trying to get a certain law passed that allows us to get a tax, uh, like, like a special tax incentive, as opposed to actually using that resource for like research and development of a new technology. Well, and the, the the shame is that when now you know somehow the rich guy across the street has has gotten his way, and now you have to pay four dollars for a pizza, and he gets to pay exactly. a little bit less. It's somehow giving him money. I, I yep. that, that's the and the sad. Ultimately, irony. the state is still taking a good shave off. Like the state right. is getting they, the pizza really only costs fifteen dollars, yeah. guys. <laughs> pizza costs fifteen dollars, but there's a lot of bloat in there, and now the state is getting to reap a lot of rewards from that by just being the middleman that forces people to pay for stuff. So uh, those two characters, just going back to those two characteristics, when you understand the state is having those two characteristics and you realize how it functions compared to the rest of society, it causes you to rethink, in my mind, it causes you to rethink how is this action not okay? If the guy's wearing a Domino's delivery hat, but all of a sudden it becomes okay because he has a business card with the IRS on it. And it, it, I don't understand. And this, this actually gets to, not many people will have the time to read this book, but if you do have the time to read this book, uh, The Problem of Political Authority by Michael Humer is one of, I think, the best modern uh, works of political philosophy that I've read. And it talks about this 
really interesting moral dilemma where where individuals who would behave in a private manner, we would understand them as being immoral in that situation, uh, using the Domino's example. But all of a sudden, we an agent of the state does it, and we have no problem with it. And that, so the problem of political authority really dives into that uh, that discrepancy. I think if the agents of the state showed up with pizza, that might change my mind a little. Maybe, maybe. I mean, pizza <laughs> went over a lot of parts and minds, I imagine. I guess you could. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, hey, um, that is definitely not how it's going to happen. So we can we can jest a little bit yeah. about it. But, I, you know, the analogy works, and also, I agree. Also, Trump made pizza, you know it would be awful pizza. Like, yep. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, we can make pizza great again. Not going to happen. <laughs> Pizza's pretty good as it is. We don't need this. It, it is good as it is, yeah. <laughs> so... You know, how we define the government is indeed important. Um, It's also important that we realize that the government isn't just this idealistic entity that does things. You talked about the IRS agent with a business card. We have actors in the government, and obviously that informs how we treat the nature of the state. Right. Well, we have human actors, yes. And we need to understand that we have human actors uh, in whatever position of power, whether it's a police officer all the way up to the president. Um, That's a human being. And that should affect how we understand the nature of that power and the, and the institution that they operate in. So what is significant about that to you? To me, what's significant about that is, again, this isn't, and then going back to my Christian beliefs, this is informed by my view on the sinfulness of man. Um, I believe in original sin, that as, as humans were sinful before God, and that doesn't just mean that we make a mistake every now and then, but otherwise we're a good person. Um, I believe that means that we are prone to sinful desires and the sinful desires and the consequences that those sinful desires lead to. And we're also tainted by the reality of sin where things that are maybe even not in our, our control all the time, like, uh, you know, psychological issues, mental, mental issues, emotional um, reactions that may or not be grounded in, in things that are, are true and, and, and right. And every human being is subject to that same basic human nature. Um, consequently, uh, we need to understand that we're not dealing with institutions uh, in and of themselves in a vacuum when we talk about uh, political actors and, and people endowed with that with the power of, of, polit- of, of the state. Um, we're dealing with human beings that have the same sort of cognitive biases, the same sort of uh, desire to like, glorify themselves, um, to uh, the same sort of sinful temptations, lusts, and passions. I mean, it's no surprise when you hear about a politician who's uh, had an affair or who has uh, done something to violate the trust of those close to him. And I'm not, I'm, in some cases, I'm just going to say that temptation is, I'm not saying that they're all necessary like that, but those temptations are going to exist and the human beings that are in those positions of power are all going to be subject to those temptations and those desires and those passions. And um, again, going back to the nature of power, if we don't assume that, if we don't understand that going into the conversation, we're already making an unrealistic assumption about how people are going to act in the, in the political context. And that to me is, um, can lead to the kind of, uh, dangerous results that we have seen in states throughout history. 
Well, people who are a little more anti-capitalistic would say that we as capitalists, uh, free market people, assume that those who are becoming wealthy, whether it's through productive – let's just assume through productive means rather than through you know government you know handouts right. and things like cr- – cronyism. So let's just Growing. assume – yeah, let's ignore the cronyism part, but you know, people who do business well, um, that um, or just without the government help, that they we're assuming they they claim anti-capitalists would claim that we're assuming that that human nature is not affecting them, right? Why is it? And yet we obviously it does. We're obviously imperfect, but why is it more important and critical to the argument that? It affects government agents more so than it does uh, free market agents. Because of incentives. Um, An individual in a free market, let's again, assuming not cronyism, because that's obviously not not as much of a problem in a truly free market. But an individual in a free market who is um, generating, uh, who is is generating wealth for themselves uh, through the creation of a business that provides a good or a service, um, they have to rely upon the voluntary admission by other people that that good and service is valuable to them and that it benefits their lives. And they also, to sustain that wealth generation, have to continue to provide that good or service that is benefiting others. Now, that doesn't mean that the individual in charge of that business could personally be kind of a scumbag. Like There are people like that who they're just not very nice people personally, but they've found a way to provide a good or service that people really value and really enjoy and it makes their lives better. And so those people voluntarily pay for that service. Um, but here's the cool thing. They are not allowed because of the, the consumer sovereignty in the market. They might personally not be a very nice person, but they have to somehow suppress that and they have to get over that and make sure that at least for the benefit of their customers, they're providing something that is valuable, that is something that their customers will voluntarily pay for. The state, when we, that is, so for me, I under, like, I completely agree that human nature will affect the capitalist, uh, the honest capitalist, as much as it will affect the, the politician or the, uh, the FBI agent or whatever example of political authority you want to use. The issue that I have is that, um, the capitalist has so much incentives put in place that he can kind of be held in check if he's not that great a person. And if he does end up being such just a terrible person, like he does horrible things in his personal life and that comes light, that will even be punished by the market in many cases. Um, the state, um, when, when, uh, if, if you're a terrible person and you get the power of the state and we're seeing this with someone like Donald Trump, there's going to be a lot of things he's going to do that we might not like, but, there's no effective check on it. There's no way for us to voluntarily say, well, I'm not, I'm not paying for that. Uh, I'm not paying to support that president because, uh, again, the power of taxation. Uh, once you realize the power of taxation, what it does, that to me is what makes, makes uh, a big difference. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, and it really, I mean, obviously we were kind of ignoring cronyism for the moment, but you know, and that does, that does it. Yeah. And that does exist. Um, but it, it seems to me that the, Cronyism exists because you have bad actors on both sides. And, yes. you know, it, yes. to me, it seems like people on the left, especially, would be a little bit more reticent to give government more authority because cronyism does exist, you know, not because right. human nature isn't affected. I think it's the cross pollination, you know, between that. So I, I grew up 
uh, maybe you grew up hearing something along these lines, probably not articulated in this way, but here's a question. If, if we believe that human nature has fallen and, you know, through the grace of God, through faith, we have individuals who submit to the authority of Christ and we have a doctrine of sanctification and the Holy Spirit is indwelling them and they are working out their salvation and right. in, in the scriptural way, I mean why wouldn't we want them in government power? Because we know that God's spirit is with them. I mean, I actually heard this argument with Trump. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so for me, um, I'll just, I'll just come at it from, uh, the perspective that I just knowing the institutional incentives of the state, I think it's way easier. And in fact, it's almost damaging to Christianity to have that perspective in my mind. And here's why I think that it can very easily become a political game to say, I have more salvation. I, ha I have more righteousness. I am, I am indwelled with the Holy spirit and have the moral authority to be this good person that you should elect and vote for and follow. And I think that's actually was a uh, part of, uh, a problem with Christianity in the, in some of the earlier uh, years where uh, it became like a political, um, a symbol of political status under uh, like Constantine and some of the other uh, Christian emperors that came after him, where it just became more about this is a status that we hold, but ultimately ended up just legitimizing a lot of power. Um, whereas, uh, uh, whereas, um, if we if we uh, view Christianity as you know saving someone individually and and causing that salvation to be worked out in practice, that has the potential I think to be far more impactful than uh, any person who would would claim to have that authority and be in the position of political authority. Just because I just basically just to be honest, I'm I am skeptical of people who make claims like that. Um, because with the incentives, the way they're structured, if that will win you enough votes, um, then you'll say it. Uh, and to me, that's also playing fast and loose with something that I think is very, um, very, uh, should not be played fast and loose. It should be something that we should guard very carefully, this idea that, yes, we're saved and that should be worked out through faith and through with patience and with the, the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's not turn it into an issue of someone's political uh aspirations and and then allow that to be something that ends up justifying their power and i think that's actually been a downfall in some instances of christianity where it has been overly politicized even throughout history let's let's turn our attention to the the actual title of this episode which is uh, what does the bible say about government or how do we understand government in light of the scripture and you have um basically kind of five rules and five biblical themes that you talk about and we've we've touched on some of them the one i want to kind of maybe just focus on is how do we avoid proof texting you know, that's one of the mm -hmm. rules you have as you you know lay the ground right. rules on how to discuss this topic what what do we do about proof texting i think everyone you know, we want to quote Bible verses because we want to have support for our arguments. Right. And right. it can also be a little lazy for someone to be like, oh, well, you're just proof texting and I just interpret this differently. Yeah. And so it, it becomes a thing yeah. to talk about proof texting. So give mm -hmm. us a little bit of uh, your rule and what does that mean? And uh, maybe how you approach certain texts without proof texting, maybe go into Romans 13. Right. So essentially, I 
what I avoid or I, I try to avoid proof texting by recognizing that each book, each verse in the Bible was written for a purpose and an audience. Uh, now, I'm not saying that every uh, every passage in the Bible should be interpreted as, oh, this is only meant for this particular audience. But we need to understand the context in which the author was writing. And I'm pretty sure, I, again, I will fully admit I'm not a biblical scholar. This is not my background. But I'm pretty sure that a lot of biblical scholars would say you can't just read what one verse in the Bible says and draw some sort of ultimate conclusion about this is the truth that the, the verse is teaching us, and this is how you've got to interpret this verse. We need to be very um, deliberate, I believe, and very thoughtful in understanding how specific verses, what they're saying specifically, but then also understanding them in the context. And for me, context includes the context of other scripture verses. Um, so if Paul says something in Romans 13, uh, we shouldn't expect what Paul says in Romans 13 to contradict what Paul says in Romans 8 or what Jesus says in uh, a chapter of John. Uh, we we should expect there to be some coherence that we can see, okay, this is what Paul's saying here, but how does that jive with something that was said here? And how can we understand those statements uh, compared to each other? Um, so understanding the context doesn't just focus on cultural. I think there should be some cultural understanding to the extent that we can research and understand that. But for me, it starts with having a good scriptural context of well, this was said in one chapter and one verse, but we need to look at these other chapters and verses that speak to the same topic. Uh, the second thing that I think is really important, uh, in addition to understanding context, is, in my mind, just being very, um, very cautious, especially for those of us who are not scholars and those of us who are not theologians, in saying, um, and I, I think that there's a little bit of fatal conceit that Christians can have sometimes when they say, so topic X is addressed and then immediately Bible verse follows and you say, oh, clearly this Bible verse says this and therefore the issue has been settled. Uh, obviously, there's some more simple issues. Thou shalt not murder is a pretty simple, it's hard to really, you know, work your way out of that one. Um, but if if you're talking about some issues, especially issues that I would argue are not inherent to our faith commitment. Again, going back to the issue that I don't think one's political viewpoint is, uh, is uh, necessary for salvation. Um, I think we just need to be more patient, more careful, and more thorough, more deliberate in realizing that we don't have all the knowledge and realizing that we need to be uh, humble and almost in some way treat the Bible a little bit more sacred than we do. Instead of flinging around a verse, uh, we need to, we need to, say, what is the word of God telling me about this topic and not use it as a, as a, a point to win an argument. I had a, I have a friend who is left-leaning and very left-leaning. In fact, uh, quite much so. He doesn't think libertarianism and Christianity go well together. This is, he gave me some advice once, um, about, you know, I, I, I value his opinion on a number of other things though. And one of the things that he did was he said that he didn't have much room for when his kid, when he had kids, his kids are adults, for them to do scripture memorization. He didn't prioritize that as much because he saw the pitfalls of potentially proof texting. And and I think that's, I mean, ancient Israel were expected to memorize and and remember, you know, re remember the Torah. And so they didn't have the Bible the way we do in in text. They had to listen to it. But he just said he just kept 
telling his kids to just keep reading it over and over and over. And, you know, I wonder if that approach to scripture would have a better effect on our, on our, uh, tendency to proof text. Does, it, does that make sense as, as a piece of advice? Possibly. Or, I don't or think he I said think, you couldn't ever memorize. I don't mean he right. at that. I think we're, we're trying to memorize in more chunks. Like I, I've known people who've tried to like memorize like a whole book, like the book of Ephesians or something. And that I think is possibly more valuable. Uh, but in memorize, yeah, if you just memorize one verse uh, here or there, um, again, I think that can lead to some of the other, uh, some of the dangers of proof texting. But ultimately, end of the day, I would, I, I think I just love to see a little bit more reverence um, and not saying that I have seen a lot of irreverence, but I think it would be a little bit more reverent to, especially when you're talking with other Christians to not just say, boom, like, especially when it's just a reference. Like I love it when I'm, you know, I'm talking about these issues. Someone says Romans 13. And like, that's like the end of the, right, that's their mic discussion. drop. <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, Let's see what Romans 13 says. Let's consider all the context and the other Bible verses related to this topic. And that's what I go into my chapter. So I know you asked me to touch on that. Um, so everyone obviously talks about, not everyone, but a lot of people talk about Romans 13 when this topic No, I up. think every Christian that talks yeah. about this brings up, it's okay to say everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Um, a lot. So Romans 13 is brought up quite often when the topic of libertarianism and Christianity uh uh, come up. And the reason for that is, I mean, Paul starts out the chapter Romans 13 by saying, uh, telling the, the Christians of Rome, uh, to let themselves be governed by the authorities. Um, straight says it, but like very first opening words of the chapter, uh, let everyone be subject to the, the higher authorities. And, and generally speaking, he is referring to, uh, some form of human authority. Um, and that scholars would agree on that. Uh, now what I find interesting about this passage, again, with my concerns about proof, proof texting is that, um, take, let's take a second to think about some of the things that Paul may have been addressing during that time. And I talk about this in the book. Uh, and there's a lot of research to show that Paul was writing amidst a time of a lot of, uh, Jewish zealotry. And we know that the zealots were a major influence um, in, uh, Israel at that time, but also there were a lot of Jews and Jewish Christians in the church in Rome. And Paul was writing to, uh, this audience, uh, knowing that these people would be familiar with and understanding the, uh, the, the zealots cause. And, uh, it, Paul, I, um, my belief ultimately in this passage is that Paul was using uh, the exhortation to, let let uh, let the Christians be subject to the higher authorities as a way to remind them as as reinforcing this idea of Romans eight that all things work together for good to those that love God and call, are called to his according to his purpose. There is nothing that stands against us, no neither princes nor principalities nor rulers of this world uh, that can separate us from the love of Christ. And um, that is ultimately the most important thing. Therefore, we're not saved by our political zealotry. We're not saved by if the emperor is overthrown or if Rome is, is, uh, is, over, is overthrown. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by the knowledge and our, and our faith in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that can come against that. So don't make this about a political cause. Do not become a Jewish zealot. Do not turn this into a, a reason to revolt against the Roman Empire. Because that's not what Christ came to do. 
Christ came to to save us and to bring us back to himself. Um, and it's ultimately so much more important than uh, the temporal goings on of, of the political day to day. Um, so, that, and, and, and I do back that up with some, some research and some scholarship uh, to talk about the zealot, you know, the fact that there was zealot influence and, and Paul was writing amidst a time of t- uh, political tumult. But the other thing that I think is even just important to note, and this is something that I, that I mentioned in the book too, um, and it, it comes from the scholarship uh, from the, 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 the scholarship of Marcus Borg that I, or that I highlighted. Paul talks very little about what he means by let yourselves be governed to the higher authorities. It's a few verses amidst the context of a very long letter. And one thing that Borg highlights is um, what happens when, because later on Paul talks about the, the ruler wields the sword uh, as, a, as a means of justice. You know, he brings punish, he rewards the good, and he brings justice upon the evil. And that's why he wields the sword. But then Borg raises the obvious moral dilemma. What happens when the emperor raises the sword against the good and, and rewards the evil? What happens when the emperor's justice is illegitimate? This is an obvious, obvious moral dilemma. And Paul just skirts around it, um, doesn't even address it. So if we're to treat Romans 13 as a biblical passage that legitimizes political authority, uh, we need to understand that the passage itself doesn't address one of the most obvious moral dilemmas that immediately pops up when we think about it. And, um, and Paul, I think is too brilliant. I mean, Paul was too learned and too, too much of a theologian and too much of a scholar. I mean, knowing his background, he was one of the most educated people in the, in the Israelite culture, uh, given, uh, his, his, um, uh, his, his, uh, life prior to becoming the apostle Paul. And there's no way that he would have just written something like that and meant for it to be a blank check for polit- the legitimacy of all political authority without understanding that there was some issues with that if it was meant in that manner. But if he meant it as simply a, guys, we don't, we, I don't want you to be a zealot, it makes a lot more sense uh, to interpret it that way. So um, that's how I tackle the issue of Romans 13, or some of how I tackle the issue of Romans 13. Uh, there's other other aspects too in terms of the themes uh, that I talk about in my book and and why I think a lot of Christian uh, contemporary Christians interpretations of Roman 13 violate some of those themes. Um, but that's that's kind of the gist of of how I would encourage people to at least at least consider thinking about Romans 13 differently. Uh, not necessarily saying they have to espouse that view, but I, I think it would be important to at least consider that as a as a viable interpretation. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was really impressed with your uh, take on Romans 13 because you you left room for people to differ on some specifics enough so that they would reconsider a way of looking at it instead of right. just kind of taking it as you know a blank check, uh, if exactly. you will. Um, yeah, you know when people kind of throw out a verse or proof text or whatever, it's almost like you know, just calling out a fallacy of even if you don't really know how that fallacy is played out. You know, people are kind of, it's, oh, you're just making right. a straw man. I'm like, well, okay, yeah. great. How? Explain to me what yeah. my straw man is. Um, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a substitute for an actual rebuttal. And I think when people bring up right. Romans 13, they assume that there's just only one way to understand it, and it's their right. way. Um, right. And I think most people 
would rethink how they understand verses like Romans 13, and I think we all would rethink certain verses depending on our circumstances, if they were living in 1930s Germany. I don't think they would be mm-hmm. saying the same thing about that particular right. verse. I mean, I, I don't know what the church did to justify its support um, of, of Hitler uh, if they used Romans 13. I, I don't know that, but I do know that the way we interpret scripture can be affected by the fact that we don't really have to deal with the ramifications of our theology because we live in a pretty free country and we live in a, and right. uh, we kind of get away with a lot. Yeah. Um, so, and for those of you out there who heard Jason's, uh, you know, quick recounting of his approach to Romans 13, just bear in mind that the book and his chapter in particular deal with Romans 13 more thoroughly. So if you have some objections, I'm sure uh, reading the book called to freedom would help a little bit. The book's about 140 pages. And I I tell you, I thought I would be able to read it a little more quickly, but I couldn't because it was just so, it was so thick with material that I just had to stop and ponder. And, you know, this is right up my alley. This isn't like new material to me, but it was a new way of thinking about it. It was a new way of, you know, attacking the problem of certain scripture passages, a certain way of, you know, dealing with the libertine versus liber libertinism versus libertarianism. So the book is something I strongly recommend. Um, Jason, for our listeners, do you have any parting words on, uh, words of wisdom from you and your study. I'm sure you you had to throw out a few paragraphs, if not more, when you were writing all your drafts. What <laughs> yeah. what, what did we not get? Maybe let, let's let's end with that. What did we not get? Do you have anything that you're like, oh, I didn't get to throw this in in the book because of editors. We'll just blame them. Uh, uh, honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll admit not really. Uh, I, I did... There were stuff. I think there were things that I cut, but a lot of it was due to wordiness, or it was due to like I've already made the point, or this is just not um, not as helpful to my argument. Um, ultimately, I, I feel pretty good about what I included. But if I if I were to you know kind of summarize, I guess summarize everything I have in a, in a parting thought. Um, one thing that's really important to me, in considering my political outlook, is my the legacy that I think it leaves for. Um, future generations, especially future generations of Christians. And this is something I, I touch out a little bit at the end of my book um, or end of my chapter. I didn't write a book yet. Maybe that'll come, maybe that'll come later. Um, but there were unfortunate instances throughout human history where Christians advocated for things that are pretty awful uh, on the basis of, I would argue, probably misunderstandings of scripture and for example, uh, for example, slavery. Um, there are Christians who justified slavery in the United States on the basis of certain passages that were proof texted and taken out of context in in uh, the New Testament. Um, there are Christians who've advocated for capital punishment for um, morally devious activities that I would still disagree with and, and probably would say are immoral, but. Uh, there was no love and there was no grace and there was no understanding that those sins are now forgiven that there's a new, a new covenant and a new way of handling those sorts of sins, um, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And, uh, I, I'm worried that many Christians today on both sides, the left and the right advocate things that don't, that even future generations may come to realize, maybe not as obvious as slavery, but, uh, we'll come to realize is, wow, they used to believe that. And I don't want to be a footnote in a future uh, publication talking about Christians used to believe this and look how terrible that was. 
Um, I do believe that we have a, a responsibility to make sure that our beliefs allow us to live out our theology in a way that it exudes and exemplifies the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives and the fact that we believe that that should be uh, for all others as well. Um, and I am concerned that advocating for the power of a state to uh, control others' lives, to tax them without their consent, to uh, regulate them without their consent in ways that are, are overbearing and, and, and ultimately irrational, um, or to force them to fund wars where innocent people die. Um, these sorts of things to me, I, I view personally, I, I don't espouse them because I believe they could be damaging to my testimony. Um, that's not who Jesus Christ was. He didn't come to force us to uh, fun, violent conflicts that would result in the deaths of innocent people. He came to show us grace and to show us mercy and to show us the way back to the Father uh, through him. And uh, I want people to know that that's what I believe first and foremost. And to me, libertarianism is the most logical extension of that, at least in the political sense. Again, not obligatory, but uh, it seems to me the most logical. Well, everybody, that's Jason Huey uh, giving us a taste of his chapter in the book called To Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. Jason, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Doug. Pleasure to be here. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and, of course, our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian.